You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. This will be the fifth class in the study series uh, addressing the four rituals of the ecclesial age. We're currently considering the ritual of sisters' silence that was assigned by God and Jesus Christ for sisters to remain silent in ecclesial worship, education, and leadership roles. So now we are addressing our seventh and eighth initial questions in our effort to better understand the heavenly truths casting the educational shadows of this divinely appointed ritual. So. Question seven was, how do the sons of men and paganized Christianity corrupt this divinely appointed ritual? That's certainly a very easy answer. Paganized Christianity is appointing women as pastors and ministers in direct contradiction to the features of our Creator's righteousness, which shouldn't really be surprising, but the enlightened community is, sadly, somewhat following this heart-generated prompt of society, also in direct contradiction to the terms of our Creator's righteousness. There are ecclesias where sisters pray, uh, where uh, sisters read from the platform, where sisters teach both adult Sunday school and midweek Bible class. The excuse that is used is the insistence of competence and capacity and value which has absolutely nothing to do at all with the divine mandate, which is simply the validation of our Creator's righteousness. Again, the mistake is thinking that everything is a, must be about us and not God, and that divine rituals are pretty meaningless in the first place, that good intentions are all that's really important, and that any considerations about God's righteousness just can't be very significant. The presumption of the goal for effectiveness is the false platform for this ungodly thought process. If effectiveness actually trumped correct performance, then a similar presumption would be that the goal of quantity would somehow trump God's goal of quality, that somehow there should be more of us and not a better us. If effectiveness were the appropriate divine pursuit, then Yahweh would never have used that invariably and very intentional, complex communication platform that is designed to circumcise our naturally very arrogant, heart-generated thought process. Correct performance, even if this inhibits effectiveness, is always the divinely appropriate procedure. In 1 Corinthians one, we see the, the reasoning, the, the divine uh, purpose in this. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty, and base things of the world and things which are despised. Has God chosen 
yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. If effectiveness were a legitimate frame of reference for objecting to the Levite-like support role of sisters during the ecclesial age, then why is it that God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise? And why aren't there more effective people drawn by God to the truth? Where are the, the powerful politicians, the very wealthy and the educational elite? Obviously, the enlightened community is not very effective at preaching the truth, but effectiveness is not a legitimate framework for objecting to the gender-based ritual mandates of the ecclesial age. Those divine rituals are not about us. They are about God's righteousness. We've reviewed the powerful consequences that God has imposed for those within the enlightened community who refuse to sanctify him when they fail to comply with his performance instructions. But we live in the final days of God's self-imposed silence. We're supposed to police ourselves in relation to promoting and defending the terms of our Creator's righteousness. But many are suggesting that, that love actually discourages correction, which is a, a terrible lie. And the natural deceptive power of the human heart with its self-worshipping perspective discourages the significant advantages of a healthy fear of God and fear of consequences from God. Endless false teachers in our community insist that our generation, well unlike any generation ever preceding us in the history of the world, doesn't have to be afraid of consequences just due to disrespecting God's righteousness. But see, that that's an eternally suicidal frame of reference. So, our, our eighth question would be, is there any teaching responsibility assigned to faithful women? Well, yes, there are two primary avenues of teaching assignments for sisters, but there's another subtle avenue that's achieved through a sister's silent testimony, which appears to comply with God's role of two or three witnesses being required for a life and death judgment. Well, first and second, sisters are required to teach uh, both younger sisters as well as their own children and children in general. We see this in Titus chapter 2, picking up verse 3. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh becomes holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, and the word of that, the word of God, be not blasphemed. So yes, sisters are commanded to teach the younger sisters in reference to specific issues. And this is why sisters' classes are certainly a legitimate educational structure, at least as long as the educational focus aligns with the divine mandate. There's also a third, more subtle avenue of education that a sister can offer. We read in 1 Peter 3, uh, 
Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that, if any obey not the word, they may also, without the word, be won by the behavior of the wives, while they behold your chaste behavior coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of plating of the hair and of wearing of gold and of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a weak, uh, meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So, yes, sisters do have teaching responsibilities, but they are limited. They're not limited on the basis of competence or capacity or effectiveness. These limited opportunities are for teaching younger sisters, children, and by example, apply to demonstrating the terms of our Creator's eternal rightness, His righteousness, which is the foundational purpose for all divinely ordained rituals. Just as the Levites had to respect their limited support role to the priesthood under the laws of the first kingdom of God, so sisters should respect their divine service assignments under the laws of the ecclesial age and, and not be like the almost 15,000 within the enlightened community who were executed by God in the equality rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So now let's, let's pro, uh, progress in our considerations uh, onto the second of the four ecclesial age rituals. This is the gender-based ritual required by Jesus Christ that insists on separate actions uh, during two activities based on gender. Um, this is the ritual of head coverings or uncoverings depending on gender during a couple of activities. So let's read about this in the primary application in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, picking up at verse two. Um, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman that prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. But all things of God 
Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it's a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no other custom, neither the ecclesias of God. We need to apply similar set of questions to this required ritual as we did with the silence ritual and of, of course divine true divine rituals in general this is obviously another gender-based ritual with those physical and spiritual components that when exercised properly demonstrate that alpha and omega harmony with both earth and heaven. This is that foundational pattern that was constituted in the very beginning of divine testimony and represents the end, when there will be absolutely no contradictions between the physical and the spiritual. Heaven and earth will blend perfectly. As we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, God will be all, in all, after that last enemy, death, uh, which is the wages of sin is eliminated. Therefore, we need to define that spiritual testimony that's being displayed in the physical act in this divinely mandated ritual. For both of the gender-based performances uh, requirements, performance requirements of praying and prophesying. Now, here are questions that need to be addressed in our considerations of this ritual. That's frequently and rather disrespectfully dismissed within the enlightened community and has been for generations. Let's start with curse question. Uh, what are the terms of our Heavenly Father's righteousness that are being testified to by correctly performing this head covering and head uncovering ritual? Secondly, um, where are those longer and shorter shadows extending from the same heavenly substance that can be witnessed in other ages, testifying to these, uh, the same divine truths as the ecclesial age head covering ritual. Third, what is the range of application for the performance of this ritual? Why are both prayer and prophesying included in that range of application? What's the commonality of these two applications that both come under the requirement of respecting headships. Is it appropriate to limit the application of the head covering, uh, well, of sisters and uncovering of brethren, exclusively uh, uh, during prayer, exclusively to the ecclesial worship environment, as was the case with the silence ritual? And fourth, what is the head that is dishonored when praying with a covered or uncovered head, is that one's own head or their divinely appointed head that's above them or, or both? And why is shaving the head of a sister equivalent to covering their head while praying or prophesying? Our fifth question will be, what are the glory identifications and these glory relationships in this ritual? Um, sixth, how 
does this head covering or head shaving requirement manifest itself in complementary fashion in the lengthening and shortening shadow testimony of God throughout other divine ages? Question 7 will be, is this ritual so insignificant? It can be dismissed without consequences from God or Christ, as many very clearly presume. And our eighth uh, and last question in this series will be, how do the sons of men, paganized Christianity, and even the enlightened community, corrupt this divinely appointed ritual? And in the context of both of these separate gender applications. So let's start with that first and the second questions in our list. What are the terms of our Heavenly Father's righteousness that are being testified by correctly performing this ritual and where's the required balance achieved in recognizing these features of our Creator's righteousness that are being displayed in this ritual? And we'll consider the second question in the same context. Where are those longer and shorter shadows extending from the same heavenly substance that can be witnessed in other ages testifying to these, uh, those same divine truths as the ecclesial age head covering ritual? Well, Paul begins his explanation for this mandated ecclesial age ritual with a declaration of the four headships of God being the head of Christ, who is the head of man, who is the head of woman. This four-tiered headship pattern is not simply a demonstration of how the number four is the divinely appointed mathematical representation of the principle of God manifestation, but establishes descending authority assignments. These authority assignments are always being challenged by the sons of men, but sadly and historically even among the sons of God. Paganized Christianity refuses to recognize both the headship of God being above Christ as well as the headship of man being above woman. The doctrine of the Trinity is a violation of so many of the terms of our Creator's righteousness, including the divine appointment of these headships. Equality is not a divine principle. It is a direct result of the serpent thought process that mankind preferred in the Garden of Eden. There are truly only two possible gods to worship in all the world at this time. And, and for the past almost 6,000 years, he's our first Yahweh, our creator. And secondly, the mirror, which is just self-worship. Every single false religion is based on self-worship. Propping up invented gods that have been created from the same exact source, our deceitful human hearts that are intent on self-worship, that original serpent lie that we should be as God. This is why every form of false doctrine has the same two things in common. False doctrine always and without exception degrades God and always without exception exalts the flesh, meaning 
ourselves. This is true of every false religion and every false doctrine that exists and has ever existed. So, the head is the seat of authority and responsibility in the creational design of the body. Guilt is often scripturally expressed as blood being upon one's head. Blessings are placed on the head of a person, as when Jacob placed his hands on the heads of Joseph's sons, crossing his hands to place his right hand, uh, offering greater blessing, on the head of Ephraim, which was Joseph's younger son, as, as recorded in Genesis 48. Responsibility is identified with the head, as God required that an offering party place one hand on the head of the animal they would th that they were personally executing and sacrificing. We read this in Leviticus 3 and 2. It says, And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And this requirement of the offering party, placing one hand on the head of the animal they were sacrificing while killing the animal with the other hand, is consistent with all the altar offering categories and even the red heifer and even on the Day of Atonement uh, with the goat. The creational testimony of the head is used in a number of scriptural applications that blend perfectly with this foundational understanding of a four-stage descending order of headships. Divinely appointed kings and high priests were anointed on their heads by holy oil to validate their divine appointment of authority, their headship status. Now additionally, the head anointing, this covering of the head with the oil-based anointing mixture, was a recognition of an authority above their own heads, that they were appointed by Yahweh and therefore had authority above their heads, just like a sister covering her head during prayer or prophesying, at least during the first two generations of the ecclesial age when prophesying was, was uh, a uh, gift that sisters could have as well. So both kings and high priests had crowns on their heads to identify their authority and appointed headship. Those head coverings were a sign of their authority, but having been appointed by Yahweh, were also under his authority. These are some of those variable length shadows extending from the exact same heavenly substance as the ecclesial age ritual of sister head coverings. This same crown image is repeated in the Nazarite vow. A Nazarite's uncut hair is defined as the consecration of God upon his or her head. We read this in Numbers 6, picking up at verse 7. He shall not make himself unclean for his father, referring to a, uh, a Nazarite, or for his mother, or his uh, for his brother, or his for his sister when they die, because the consecration of his God is upon his head all the days of his separation he is holy unto the Lord the Hebrew word translated consecration here as nazar 
which is most often translated as crown, and particularly the crown of the high priest, which interestingly was not allowed to be placed directly on the head of the Mosaic high priest, but had to be set on the head covering of the high priest, which was his, his turban or, or mitre. Um, we read in Exodus 29, you shall put the mitre uh, upon his head, meaning the turban, and put the holy crown, and that's Nazar, upon the mitre, the head covering. And Exodus 39, we read, and they made the plate of the holy crown, the Nazar, of pure gold, and wrote upon it a writing like the engravings of a signet, holiness to Yahweh. And they tied unto it a lace of blue to fasten it on high upon the mitre, the turban, the head covering, as Yahweh commanded Moses. And then Leviticus 8, um, verse 9, and he put the mitre, the turban, the head covering, upon his head, and also uh, upon the mitre, even upon his forefront, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, Nazar, as the Lord commanded Moses. So we have this identification between the head of the Nazarite and the head of the high priest, between the uncut hair of the male or female Nazarite and the golden crown of the high priest. This headship and crown identification of the Nazarite offers a specific insight into the ecclesial age ritual of head coverings, um, or uncoverings, depending on the gender, uh, during prayer. Each of the interestingly four conditions imposed on the Nazarite under the laws of the First Kingdom Age are completely reversed in the rituals of the Ecclesial Age, just as the primary educational theme of the First Kingdom Age was transgressional sin, and the primary educational theme of the Ecclesial Age is imputed righteousness. The Nazarite terms of separation to God identified the man or woman making a Nazarite vow directly with the high priest um, as, as the high priest was the only other person in all of Israel that was similarly absolutely forbidden to touch any dead body in addition to uh, uh, um, sharing that same consecration on their head. Uh, with that golden crown. Uh, we read it in Leviticus 21, And he that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall not uncover his head, nor rend his garments, neither shall he go into any dead body, but defile, nor defile himself for his father or for his mother. The high priest could never uncover his head during his tabernacle service, just as a sister should not uncover her head during prayer or prophesying. In the same way, a Nazarite was not permitted to cut their hair during the period of their vow. Another direct parallel is how the high priest could never drink alcohol while in the service of the tabernacle. In the same pattern as the Nazarite, 
we read in um, Leviticus uh, 10, uh, picking up at verse 8, and the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may put difference between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean. So, the four uh, conditions that identified a Nazarite vow were um, that they would not cut their hair, that they would touch no dead body, that they wouldn't consume any alcohol, not wine or any strong drink whatsoever, and that they would consume no dead uh, that they would consume no grape product. Um, at the end of their vow, that term, the Nazarite uh, was instructed to shave his or her head completely and place that hair into the altar fire as kindling for the peace offering. We read in Numbers chapter 6, uh, verse 18, And the Nazarite shall shave the head of his separation at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and shall take the hair of the head of his separation and put it in the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offerings that love offering that uh, harmony offering now, these four conditions are exactly reversed in the four rituals of the ecclesial age as we are required to touch the dead by being baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. And we're required to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the memorial service. We're required to drink the memorial service wine, that alcohol, uh, not only alcohol, but a grape product. Although the Nazarite had, uh, had to shave their head at the conclusion of their vow, uncovering their head, a sister must always cover her head, or, as the instruction is, or shave it. And a brother must never cover his head, unlike the Nazarite, whose long hair was a consecration of God upon his head. Additionally, we're told that brethren must cut their hair. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where it says uh, that it's a shame, an absolute shame, for a man to have long hair. At least that's what God says, maybe not society, certainly what God says. The primary public identification of a Nazarite was their uncut hair. This uncut hair was defined as the consecration or the crown that was on their head. This was the always publicly visible declaration of their separation to Yahweh and their separation from those four conditions. Therefore, the features of God's righteousness being demonstrated in this Nazarite vow must harmonize with the features of God's righteousness being demonstrated in the dual application of the gender-based ecclesial age ritual of head coverings during prayer or prophesying. Further emphasizing this harmonized consistency in head covering rituals would be how the Mosaic high priest <coughs> always 
had to have his head covered during his tabernacle service, just as we noted, just as a sister is required to always have her head covered during particularly prayer or the uh, uh, prophesying, which was, of course, a time-limited gift. We read in Leviticus chapter 21, starting at verse 10, He that is the high priest among his brethren, upon whose head the anointing oil was poured, and that is consecrated to put on the garments, shall never uncover his head, nor rend his clothes. It should be noted the Mosaic high priesthood was also only serving as a help meet to the true messianic high priest. Just as sisters in the truth, the Mosaic high priest had a greater divinely appointed power or authority over his head. This is not only why he had to always serve with a covered head, but why that golden crown declaring holiness to Yahweh could not rest directly on his head, but had to be put on top of his high priest head covering, that mitre or turban. We read in Exodus 29, verse 6, You shall put the mitre, the turban, upon his head, and put the holy crown upon the mitre. And Leviticus 8, And he put the mitre upon his head, also upon the mitre, even upon his forefront did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. The Mosaic high priest served in the same headship relationship to Christ as sisters do in their divinely assigned support status of to their husbands and fathers and brothers in the truth. A sister presuming to usurp the authority of a brother would be equivalent to a Mosaic high priest defying Jesus Christ, which is exactly what Caiaphas the high priest did when he advised the Sanhedrin to orchestrate the execution of Jesus of Nazareth after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. Caiaphas the high priest refused to submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. It is similarly unwise for sisters to refuse to respect the head God has appointed for sisters by praying at any time with an uncovered head. There is a similarity in the ritual of a healed leper with the ecclesial age head covering ritual as well. A healed leper had oil poured on his shaved head, a covering that head and that constituted an atonement. In Leviticus chapter 14, we read in verse um, 18, And the remnant of the oil that is in the priest's hand he shall pour upon the head of him that is to be cleansed, and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. This is done by covering the head. That's what atonement means, to cover. This oil head covering in the absence of hair, should be of particular interest. We see the same hair shaving and head covering components as seen in the Nazarite law, and as also noted in the sister's head covering or head shaving distinction in the ecclesial age uh, ritual. Leprosy now did not constitute a transgression of any divine law, 
It was just a disease. But it was a disease that demonstrated a bodily corruption that was like, somewhat like a slowly decaying corpse, but while the body still lived. Leprosy served as a creational testimony on the basis of the Edenic curse to the principle of sin in the flesh, that category of sin that prompts temptation and is responsible for the physical application of decay, disease, and death. It's that sin category that only needs cleansing, never needs repentance or forgiveness, but does need atonement. In Second Peter 1, Peter um, makes this direct relationship. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This existence of corruption and decay in the natural order is the direct result of the same divine curse in Eden that burdened mankind with the serpent frame of reference that they chose, that our ancestors chose, that lust prompting frame of reference. There, there was no corruption or decay in that divinely very good creational order before sin physically corrupted everything in creation almost 6,000 years ago. The required ritual of a, for a healed leper is therefore a divine shadow map of the salvation process, recovering from that curse of sin that God righteously imposed on mankind in Eden. And this is why that healed leper uh, ritual took an eight, was an eight-day process. We read in Leviticus 14, um, in the, in the process of describing the um, healed leper um, cleansing procedure. He says, And on the eighth day he shall take two he lambs without blemish and one ewe lamb of the first year without blemish and three tenth deals of fine flour for a meat offering, grain offering, mingled with oil and one log of oil. In similar fashion it will be on the eighth divine day just after the millennial kingdom will have expired, that all disease and decay and corruption and death will be eliminated. Death will be eliminated in that eighth millennium, that eighth divine day. As we're told in both Revelation 20 and 1 Corinthians 15, that death is eliminated after the complete conclusion of the millennial kingdom, which of course is that seventh divine day in the Creator's plan. The healed leper cleansing ritual also serves as a reflection of the priestly ordination procedure, which also took exactly eight days. We read in uh, Leviticus, well, beginning with the last verse of chapter 8 and through the beginning of chapter 9. It says, Therefore shall you abide, and these are instructions for the priest applicants, with their ordination, you shall abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation day and night, seven days, and keep the charge of the Lord, that you die not, for so I am commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses, and it came to pass on the eighth day, 
Then Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said unto Aaron, Take you a young calf for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering, without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. Just as the blood of the ordination ram was dabbed on the right ear, the right thumb, and the right large toes of the priest applicants, and had uh, anointing oil poured on his head, as um, we can read in Leviticus 8, so the leper had the blood of a trespass offering placed on his right ear, his right thumb, and his right large toe, in similar fashion. This was repeated with oil for the leper, and the remaining oil was placed on that shaved head of the healed leper, as we read in Leviticus 14. There are definite divinely appointed parallels between the healed leper ritual and the ordination ritual of the priests for the first kingdom of God and the Nazarite vow ritual observations and the sisters head covering ritual of the ecclesial age. Those, those constitute those longer and shorter versions of the same earthly shadow extending from the same heavenly substance as that ecclesial age ritual of head coverings. So, as the Nazarites shaved their covered head at the conclusion of their vow, so the healed leper shaved their entire body of all its hair, as we can read in Leviticus 14. One might ask why, why that might be. What's the point? of shaving all hair. Well, hair is what grows naturally out of the body, just as sin comes naturally out of a mortal body that was cursed by sin in Eden. Jesus makes this distinction about how what is unclean naturally flows out of a person when he, in that context, when he declared all meats to be clean. In Matthew chapter 15, uh, we read, picking up verse, well, verses 10 through 12, and then 15 through 20. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then came his disciples and said to him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Then answering, then answered Peter and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable, say, this parable. Uh, and Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? Do you not, do not ye yet understand that whatsoever comes in, enters in at the mouth, goes into the belly and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands defiles not a man. The additional creational testimony, of course, constituting that spoken word of God witness, uh, that testimony validating this understanding is how the human body naturally dispenses 
those three categories of bodily waste that it has corrupted from those three categories of clean nutrition that went into the body, which those three are clean air, clean water, clean food. Those three bodily waste categories being expelled parallel the three categories of sin, which John tells us are the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, as well as the three maturing stages of sin, which James tells us are first lust, for which we bear no guilt. And when lust conceives, it produces transgressional sin, which of course imposes guilt. Uh, and the third and last stage is death, which is God's answer for sin. As Jesus says, it is what comes out of a man that defiles the man. The hair that naturally grows out of a person has to be completely shaved off in the ritual of the healed leper who's seeking restoration into the community of the children of God. The uncut hair of the Nazarite, that, that badge of their vow of service in separating themselves to Yahweh, had to be shaved and burned in the altar fire of the peace offering, again representing harmony with God. Therefore, doesn't it seem perfectly appropriate that a sister unwilling to cover her head during prayer to God through Christ, or, or prophesying during those first two generations in the ecclesial age, that she would have the option of shaving her head in order to demonstrate the same feature of our Creator's righteousness that she has to recognize. She has a divinely appointed authority over her head that must be recognized just as the ecclesial bride of Christ has to recognize our Christ bridegroom to be our God-appointed head. This head covering and uncovering by shaving is a consistent feature in divine rituals. So why is the ecclesial age head covering during prayer dismissed and diminished so effortlessly by so many Christadelphians? as if there's, well, there's no basis for this really. The consistent application of the same principle is pretty easy to find if we're just willing to open our eyes and our ears as Jesus recommend, recommended to his disciples. One or another one of those variable shadow lengths extending from the same heavenly substance being demonstrated in the ecclesial uh, age ritual of, of headships would be how a woman's head, be, meaning her father or her husband, uh, during the um, during the first kingdom age, had the authority to invalidate a vow that a woman would have made to God. Numbers thirty explains how the father of an unmarried woman could disannul his daughter's vow to God on the day that he becomes aware of that vow. We read this in. Uh, Numbers 30, uh, verse 5 and verse 13. But, but if her father disallow her in the day that he hears not any of her vows or of her bonds wherewith she has bound, herself, bound her soul shall stand, and the Lord shall forgive her because her father disallowed her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict the soul, her husband may establish it or her husband may make it void. This right 
of the father or husband uh, of a woman within the enlightened community to disannul a woman's vow to God certainly demonstrates the same headship principle that's being emphasized in both the ecclesial age ritual of head coverings and silence. So, in our next class, we, in the, in, in the series, we're, we're going to address the question concerning the range of application for the performance of this ritual and why both prayer and prophesying are specifically included in that range of application with both the head coverings of sisters and the uncovered heads of brethren. Uh, we'll also consider that head that's dishonored when praying with a covered or uncovered head. Is that one's own head or their divinely appointed head above them? And we should also be able to identify those glory issues that are related to this ritual. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.